to another episode of Three Wise DMs, the podcast where three dungeon masters, who've been doing this for way too long, talk about all the things we do to try to make our games as good as they can be. I'm Thorne, and I'm joined by... Tony. Images of broken light which dance before me like a million eyes. They call me on and on across the universe. Across the universe, across the multiverses, the gaming multiverses. And that dovetails with what we want to talk about today, because today we're looking at when you're talking about different genres of games, we're doing different kinds of games. How can you make those settings feel real and reinforce the genre and the setting and the way you're presenting it? And this again comes to us from one of our listeners from Jared. Jared, thank you very much for writing in again. Uh, we'll get into his question in a minute. But before we do, one more time, Dave. Capes and Crooks. That's right. Capes and Crooks. Capes and Crooks is a superhero RPG built on and fully compatible with D&D 5e using the open source SRD. So you can bring superhero role-playing to any group that knows the 5e mechanics, but it takes those rules and adapts them to create a really cool system for creating superheroes in a unique world that Crit Academy has created. Capes and Crooks is about to launch on Kickstarter, and we hope you'll check it out. Visit critacademy.com slash capesandcrooks for more information. All right. So, man, so cool having our first sponsor. So yeah. cool. Now we're looking for our second people. Send us your stuff and we will talk about it. Maybe. We're open to it. We're open to it. So, guys, the email from Jared, here's what he's asking for. We've, we touched on this a little bit last week. When we talked about what makes a superhero game different from a regular fantasy game. We talked about a little bit of this about a couple months ago when we talked, we did the episode on bringing your campaign world to life. But what Jared asked about here is I've heard mention of different types of stories for campaigns. For instance, you frequently reference your familiarity with Eldritch Horror Cthulhu based campaigning. So I'm wondering if you have any tips about DMing different genres, sort of in the vein of your episode of the eight player type. How would you three DM fantasy or intrigue or a mystery? What about when one or more genres be began to mix either by design or by player agency? More specifically, and perhaps this is a different question, how do you deal with different levels of technology in D&D 5e campaigns? Now, what Jared really wants to do is create kind of a more of a steampunky kind of campaign, maybe build something similar to uh, Castle in the Sky or Howl's Moving Castle, a kind of those um, kind of steampunky kind of magic settings, you know, where magic is a common profession, but technology is advanced to the level of railways, airships, and radios, maybe early movie projectors. And Jared finally asked, what do I need to keep in mind for this versus, say, Storm King's Thunder or Curse of Strahd, where tech is not nearly as advanced? So kind of a broad question here, but really does get to the fundamentals of you have a campaign you want to run. You have a particular genre, a particular setting you want it to be in. How do you make that setting feel different from D&D.Campaign World? everything else you're running, especially if it's in the same, you know, 5e campaign setting. So guys, what do you think? You know, maybe let's start with what are some genres that you've run and how did you make them feel different from your stock D&D fantasy setting? Well, if I'm jumping into the superhero one, one of the hallmarks I want to have different with this is that you have to set the scene. Yeah, mm -hmm. everyone has, if you're in New York, throw out the descriptions. Everybody has a general description of the environment they're in, but not to a point where it's droning on. There's that whole description, you know, like I said, lore tolerance, what everyone wants to hear. So they get yeah. the feel of where they're at, and then let's move forward. And when they transition scenes, it's equally important. Your new place, let's describe that and why this is different than you're just in the woods. Sometimes you don't need that audacious description, but in these other special places that are different, then I think it's certainly necessary. And let's just, before we move on, I want to hit that again, the lore tolerance. We've talked about that before, but can you define that real quick for listeners who didn't catch it? Well, either with a description or lore, there's only so much I feel that your audience is prepared to listen to or needs to be immersed in the setting. So, for example, come to a castle, perhaps, I, don't, I mean, I could deliver a really beautiful, you know, three and a half to five minute description on this castle, but do they really want that? <laughs> They're like, are you trying to sell me this castle? Like, seriously, like... It's got beautiful curve appeal. It's got, it, it, it's, it's, it's a real fixer up. <laughs> Tony, speaking of that, with lore tolerance, have you found, um, because you do so much uh, backstory building and world building, have you found groups that actually, where there is a, a want for that lore tolerance, where they're wanting more, where they're asking those questions? Absolutely, but that depends upon the room you're in. 
I made jokes about this, and one of my friends was like, no, I'd love to hear about that. And I'm like, not the table I'm at. They want to come in there and jump into it, and it's a gamble. When you're doing a vast amount of lore, like if you're trying to set the setting where this is like this is an ancient place and a lot's happened, and there's stories that are untold and you must discover them, you're gambling that they're going to, one, pick up on it without you slapping them in the face with it, or two, are really legitimately interested when they come across it. They're like, oh... An ancient elven uh, smith actually founded this town. Well, that's nice. And then they move on versus anything else. And you're like, but this, these three pages I have prepared about this. No one, they're moving on. They're they're at the market. Uh, you know, and then you yeah, and actually, let it go like it's no big deal. As we uh, kind of talked about that last time when we brought up the lore tolerance, just to kind of finish it out here, I think, is the we kind of all agreed that your players will tell you exactly when they want to know more about the dwarven smithy and his relationship to the castle or something like that. Once you throw out this little tidbit, they'll let you know what parts of the world are important to them. And then you can you can build those out more or or increase that for your for your setting. Yeah. I mean, the flip side is, of course, you don't want to create a ton of detail that isn't going to be used, especially if you're struggling to create it. You know, you might have stuff off the top yeah. of your head you want to write down just so you have it. But if you're digging in and writing a story of uh, writing like a long, like Tony said, three page background story, you may well find that your gaming group doesn't have the lore tolerance for you to deliver that. And what happens then is they may get bored. They may tell you they're bored. But even more than that, they won't follow it. Like you'll just you can rattle on for 10 minutes talking about the background of the city. And if your group doesn't have the tolerance for that kind of lore, you are just basically wasting your time. Yeah. You know, they're just sitting there waiting for you to give them something to attack that or something to interact. So, you know, keep that in mind. And that is, I think, as we go through all of this, this is going to be important because each of these setting types could have long descriptions involved. But I think as a DM, what you're really trying to do is find how can I convey my genre and my setting without long descriptions? Because you are in a short, it, it's, a, it's a little bit of a short form kind of setting. You really want to hit one or two details, the important details, add some detail, and then add some kind of gilding around it and move on and let the players tell you what they want to know about. Yeah. And that goes There's for right. every genre. So that's kind of like our overarching, how do you do this? Number one, keep lore tolerance in mind. Don't overwrite <laughs> the background. And understand that your players, you know, know, know how to give your players enough to set the scene and let them explore the, the rest of what they want and feed it to them as they want. Yeah, if you want to throw that out, you're going to take the gamble. There's a couple ways you should do this. And I recommend that if you're going to spend a lot of time describing something or at least more than above average, make it have a point. Otherwise, people yeah. will get disinterested in that and like, oh, you're describing this this wall, you know, for two lines. And, you know, I, it might as well be the other wall that has a secret door on it. And also, too, if you're throwing out lore, it has to tie into something else. So perhaps you're telling them a story. Maybe this is going to be involved and give them an edge with an NPC later or down the road. That one player who's taking notes or really is into it. It's like, hey, didn't we hear about this guy? Didn't we hear we can't be trusted? Something like that. Which is back to, you know, yeah. we've said a few times, you teach players how to play your game. If you give them a lot of detail that isn't important, that doesn't turn around and pay off with something, you're teaching them to ignore your detail. And be careful what you do say, because when the players are listening, that's when they're going to latch on to something that you you <laughs> might not have meant it that way. They're going to latch on to that, and then they're going to carry that for 28 sessions down the line <laughs> and still be seeking for this. And I say that because it actually popped in this while we were talking about this. It made me think of it. It just popped in my head the other day because I was Don't starting bring a baby to— Walter. Please. <laughs> no, no, not baby Walter. No, that was great when the players told me exactly how I could just keep one, at least one player hooked, if not two of them. But it was more, I was thinking because I was getting my session, next Curse of Strahd session together, some of my notes and stuff and where are we going from here and blah, blah, blah. And I realized it came back to me that when I did the Madam Ava reading, the way in which I kind of built it where I wanted to show, and we've talked about this before, I wanted to show the players that this this being, this Madam Ava, this Vistani seer was more than she seemed, was powerful, was connected to this world in a way that they had not maybe encountered yet as they first entered into Barovia. So she knew things about the party that no one would know. That I just pulled right from the, the backstory. Easy peasy. But then I decided, okay, I'll have them tell the fortune 
and I'll tell each fortune, and that's how I'm going to reveal the Taraka deck reading. Awesome, cool. These are where the artifacts are. This is where your ally is. This is where you're going to find Strahd. Boom, boom, boom. And the players wrote it down as each of them, that was their specific fortune that <laughs> they had to find that was directly tied to their character. And that came up a couple times uh, sessions later, and I kept trying to intimate that, well, you know, realize that that was more of like a foot, but no, they, that was the lore that they took on and they, they ran with it. And, you know, it is what it is. But be careful when you're doing all of this lore dropping or, or scene setting that your players might be listening really intently, especially if it's early on. <laughs> they might just pick up on the things you didn't mean to put in there. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Ooh, we have our, I have my own tarot reading. It, it's Taraka deck reading. I'm special. <laughs> and away we exactly. go. The, play, the player's oh, going to grab. This is, this is about my, oh, this is my character. Okay, what's going on? What do I need to find? Where's my cool <laughs> magic item? Go. DM Dave well, custom built yeah. all of this for me. <laughs> That was something that happened in the original Ravenloft module. So when I saw that, I'm like, all right. In the original one, bad shit can really happy, happen to you. So like, okay, yeah. Hawk the Barbarian, flip a card. You're unlucky for the next module you're in. Oh, well, that shits. You know, that kind of stuff. I'm like, uh, I'll let the other guys pull. It's like a minor deck of many things. Oh, right. <laughs> it was more like the deck of many things. Thing. Yeah, so that actually dovetails real quick. Slight. I just wanted to say back to your original question, Thorin, about scene setting, especially with different types, mystery, intrigue, fantasy, whatever. I go back to knowing your setting because a lot of these things play differently. When we're talking about something like Strahd, like Tony was just saying, it can, it's supposed to be gothic horror, it's supposed to be creepy, but in D&D, especially 5e, that only lasts so long because you guys get so powerful that the world isn't as scary, which I would put against in contrast to Call of Cthulhu, where the world is scary and it's getting worse. And you're not getting more powerful, you're actually also getting worse. So <laughs> know your system. As, yeah, as they are slowly chipping away at your sanity. So, mm -hmm. you know, and I guess, Dave, that's a good place to start. So how, now we played some normal fantasy role-playing with, you know, you had the Slaver's Bay group, had its own vibe, yeah. but kind of traditional fantasy. Very well could have been a Forgotten Realms or, you know, a, anywhere like that Easily. as far as like, Easily. yeah. How did you, like, what did you do to try to make the gothic horror genre of Curse of Strahd stand out from that? Yeah, I just leaned heavily into the material as it was presented. I leaned heavily into my understanding of things like Dracula and the Universal Monsters. Because I've said this before, I think where Curse of Strahd really shines, and people can, can differ on this opinion, but I think uh, you have to give it some of its due, it's the Universal Monsters, and you're getting to play with them because it's not just Dracula. It's not like the original Ravenloft where you're. it's just Castle Ravenloft and you enter Barovia, and that's pretty much the whole adventure. This is an entire world unto itself that you have things like Frankenstein and, you know, the hags or the witches and the werewolf and stuff. So I started to add things in, like I said, with the Amber Temple, I added a mummy lord because... Well, we're missing Boris Karloff as the mummy, so let's do that, you know, and it mm. made sense. So I leaned heavily into the material, and I leaned heavily into uh, what I what I look at as gothic horror. So, Tony, what about, you know, so we can start with kind of gothic horror. We can almost start anywhere. For basic fantasy, I guess maybe what we need is a baseline. You know, mm. how do you set the scene of regular D&D? Like, I mean, let's, let's start by kind of putting, trying to, trying to, uh, you know, outline that. So what are the markers we use for traditional fantasy? And Tony, you do a lot of this. So like, you know, like for Storm King Slender or for, for a regular campaign, what are you trying to hit for your normal fantasy setting? Well, I'll give you the next one that falls in line after, uh, the setting, the scene, and we can kick that around, which is you, so you create this scene, you, this place, whether you're setting a singular scene or you're creating in an entire environment. And then the next thing you want to do is you want to fill, in, fill it with meaningful NPCs. Just like Dave was talking about Mata Eva. She is a unique 
NPC to that gaming environment. You're not going to find Elminster in Ravenloft. You're going to find Mad and Eva or Strahd or one of those more hallmark characters that also does the work for you. They provide flavor for that environment. So like, and so if you're trying to set something for a regular fantasy D&D setting, what should that look like? Well, as I said, you want to create, you pick out your NPCs, whether they're book or your custom ones that you've, you've put together from your imagination and spread them out. These all have meaning. These are people that are the movers and the shakers. They know things. They're perhaps your adversaries. Perhaps they'll be your excellent allies. And if there's nothing to it worth exploring in this environment you've created, like an interesting NPC, mm. the players are not going to go looking. But do you have anything specific? Like if you're doing high fantasy, normal D&D, do you have specific setting, genre kind of things you're trying to, that, that you put in there to make it feel right? Like high fantasy? Yeah, like well, D&D.campaign setting, like yeah. Thorne had said earlier, yeah. Well, if we're going to do something in high fantasy, then you have to select the appropriate cast. So then what did I have in Storm King's Thunder? You had Zephyrus. He was a book character. You've got a cloud giant who's also a wizard who's flying around in a wizard's tower on a cloud. That really... Pace. Yeah, yeah, that is about as high fantasy as D&D gets, it, and, and, unless you see Zeus <laughs> flying over his head somewhere. And that was like three sessions in, too. So, uh, like, you set that bar pretty pretty quickly. I mean, session one starts with you get to town, and the town has been bombed from the air by giants in a flying castle. So what, what, does, what does that all that do, though? So it puts out there, okay, you're these you're scrappy new adventurers but what does this world look like? Okay, we're running into some orc mercenaries and all that jazz, and that's great. But by the way, the real problem is giants. Here's a town where we're going to. It's decimated, and they're out there. You're not the coolest kids on the block. Absolutely. So, you know, to kind of go through the question here, and, you know, it's, you know, Jared asked, how do we DM fantasy or intrigue or mystery? He asked about Eldritch Horror, and then eventually gets to uh, steampunk and doing something that's a little more like, you know, Castle in the Sky or How's Moving Castles. Why don't we kind of go through that and talk about how we DM those different things? Tony, like you said, one of the things you do in high fantasy is you introduce the big fantasy epic magic, and people feel that, and they see that, and they know the world's full of high-level magic users or world-shaking powers, you know, literally. I think something I do when I'm trying to DM fantasy, kind of your, gen like, I, mean, I shouldn't say generic D&D. &D. The truth is generic D&D &D in 5th edition is actually higher magic than I prefer my setting to be. Like, I prefer my traditional fantasy setting to be a little more, you guys are, you know, the basic human being in the setting is a peasant, a serf, they're doing farming, maybe there's merchants, low tech, low expectations as far as, you know, their, their quality of living, High income inequality, you could call it, you know, the nobles are living like nobles and you have, you know, your warrior classes, your wizards, things like that are probably a little more privileged and have access to different kinds of things. That's kind of traditional to me, medieval fantasy. And I tend to like that kind of setting because I like having, you know, I like having the player starting out with, ooh, a good sword that isn't magical is still pretty cool before we get to the point of, OK, I'm not happy with anything less than a plus five Vorpal blade. You know, <laughs> I like having some scale up. I think regular D&D fantasy kind of starts with sort of that European. It doesn't need to be European, but you, this, the base setting of Forgotten Realms is a relatively Western fantasy epic high magic fantasy kind of setting the the characters do start off with a lot of powers right away so you know the power level in the world has to be high you're almost always going to put in some high powered npcs around them or at least they're going to run into the villain who's higher powered than they are so you can set that bar for oh yeah there's escalation you're you're not tough enough yet to take on the big things and you know you're gonna i think you know set it with you know there's a lot of walking there's a lot of horses there's a lot of you going in and exploring caves and cleaning out goblins and dealing with bandits and thieves in the woods and to me those are kind of the hallmarks of your traditional fantasy setting what do you guys think of that does that sound about right anything else you'd add to that i would in the sense that and that, that's all solid but one of the things i like to do in my fantasy setting is i set the benchmark for magic because that's such a core part of the game mm -hmm. so for example all right you're in a fantasy setting magic exists magic swords exist your spellcasters fantastic that's all understood are you running you're going to a backwater town with a population of 300 and you're protecting mm. that and you could and no one's even seen a magic blade or are you going to original Greyhawk where you walk into a place with a, with a population of 600,000 and they have indoor plumbing that's entirely done with <laughs> magic dwarves made it there's air-conditioned buildings you could send magical messages you could take flying ships to places where does magic land and then that kind of helps me position 
what everything else looks in terms of benchmarks for the rest of the campaign. Absolutely. Because, I mean, if Magic's there, then your average Magic using PC isn't really very hot. There's a hundred of them, in t- there's a thousand of them in town, in a town of 600,000. Right. There's, 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 a, there's a, is there a Wizards University that's very established. <laughs> there may be several. And here's the thing. You automatically assume at this point there's multiple Magic item shops. Expect your guys to be mm. wandering around this town looking at all the, the apothecary. Do I have Magic potions? Pfft. Is the sun going to come up tomorrow? You know where they are. Just take them right to Diagon Alley. Right. The <laughs> original Greyhawk, there was literally a 1% chance you could find any artifact in the book in there if you were looking around for it. <laughs> I, yeah, I love that. I think, though, uh, a lot of times it's the idea that the world is being civilized and controlled, but it's a world that came from somewhere else, some sort of cataclysm or or prior age where these powerful, powerful uh, magic users and beings were creating and crafting these items, these artifacts, these things, and something occurred, some sort of cataclysmic event occurred, and now we're in this age. And that's the reason that dungeons or people are going there's no reason that anyone would be going into a dungeon unless they're finding shit there was no reason people were grave robbing the the pyramids except there was treasure there there was something that they had before we were here and we're gonna go get it uh so definitely that that's one of the reasons i'm kind of against generally magic shops i dig them in terms of like how tony has presented them uh in a way to use your gold and stuff but I like the idea of that magic having to be found and having to be to fought for. Uh, and the idea of fantastical creatures. There's dragons. There are weird aberrations. There's gelatinous cubes out there. There are carrion crawl. There's all this pegasi. All this weird shit is out there, and you're living in the midst of it, right? So it's that, that fantastical locations, fantastical creatures, and magic is a thing. How big or small or or accessible, who knows, but... It's interesting because that, to me, is like, that's sort of the... It's one of the basic high fantasy settings, but Greyhawk is a little different because, like, in the one, you have kind of... You know what this is actually like? And there's a historical... There's a historical reason we tend to like stories like this, and it's the fall of Rome. Because, like you Mm. say, you know, why did they start, you know, why did they start grave robbing from pyramids? Why did why do we have this idea that there's ancient technology that we can use yeah. to become to, to to advance ourselves? Part of the reason for that is we have a cultural memory of the fall of Rome, and for several hundred years, this some of the technology from from that time was being rediscovered in in Western Europe. A lot mm. of it didn't need to be rediscovered in say in in, in say uh, the, you know, the Muslim lands or in China. They didn't have that fall, but in Western you know kind of Western stories and Western mythology, there is this idea of there was Rome. Rome civilized everything and brought technology. Then Rome fell. And like, if you're out in England, you really lost all that tech. Mm. doesn't mean it was really a dark age. There's a lot of, if you've a lot of scholarship around that, but there is this story of, well, Hey, we found a document written by the Romans and we have the priest who can read Latin. And Oh, this describes how to make a catapult, which we had forgotten how to do. So we can now recreate Mm. a 200 year old technology that we can use to go knock down enemy fortifications. Like that sort of thing actually happened kind of in the, after the fall of Rome. So that, idea is really central to kind of what we like in kind of typical fantasy setting i think but you can also be you know tony's description of greyhawk is like living at the height of rome when yeah. we when, when, you know it's the height of the civilization and they've pushed everything to its utmost limit and a lot of these things are very kind of in some ways kind of based on the way we make myths out of the history we've had well you could yeah. pair that up because that's a very interesting point with that that's i i that resonates with me, that idea, that cultural uh, memory of that. You can also pair that up with what came out of Greece and Rome, right, as the ancient civilizations, right, was a lot of stories and myths and legends of what? Fantastical creatures, right? Yep. That mm-hmm. the gods or the demigods fought, the Medusa, right, the Kraken, these these types of mythological, like, like uh, fantastical creatures, and that falls right into that whole high fantasy setting as well. You know, that goes beyond. That's not just a ma- factor of classical mythology. The Celtic mythology from the north had very mm-hmm. and actually in the German mythology, they mm-hmm. had very similar ideas where. Uh, so, for instance, in the in ancient Irish mythology, you have a succession of beings that conquer Ireland. There's the Fielbog, 
come first, the, where the fireballs come from from D&D, and they were ugly giants. They were driven out by mm-hmm. the dead and on, who are literally who we came to embody. That is the concept of elves we have. Basically, that's Tolkien's elves are in many ways the Twelfth of Dedanah. I know a lot of his stuff came from Iceland and from Anglo-Saxon mythology, but Anglo-Saxon mythology is very close to Celtic mythology. There was this idea that the Tawatha Dedanah in Irish folklore drove out the Fearbulgs, and then eventually the Tawatha Dedanah went from their kind of, they, they started to fall from their state, and humans came, and humans drove them underground, so they lived underground as the fairies, as the she, and humans inherited them as the succession. Yeah. So that, that literally means, sounds like the first, second and third age of uh, middle earth. Right. It, it's no accident that the scholar of languages and yeah. Anglo-Saxon history wrote it that way. <laughs> There's a very good reason yeah. that that goes that way, but it, it's not, but the thing is too, Anglo-Saxon mythology was the same way. We've lost a lot of that, but that's what Tolkien was finding. A lot of his stuff comes from Icelandic myths that had the same ideas. Norse mythology had the same ideas, and Germanic mythology yeah, is very similar to Norse. Yeah, yeah. They, they all have this kind of succession of, you know, there were the monstrous races, and there were the godlike races, and there was us. You know, and mm-hmm. there's kind of a civiliz- civilizing of the world through a slow civilizing of the people who come in. And that is all very, you know, from a certain point of view, uh, off-color, <laughs> because, it, you know, it, it implies the earlier races are barbaric, but it is it does underlie a lot of what we think of as typical Western mythology. What I would, just as a a final point on that, for me, going back to when we're talking about setting these these scenes or setting these worlds and these these genres, let's say, um, we all steal. Every culture has steal, right? We're all talking about the same myths over and over again, the same stories. So steal, that's fine, but know your source material. What are you attempting to recreate in your own image, right? And if it's something like we're talking about here, where it's like the fall of Rome or or ancient Celtic mythology or something, know your source material and build it from there because all of that stuff is there already for you. One of the things in, as you're defining between genres or settings is that you want to impress upon your party how things get done. If it's not in the traditional D&D, D&D is a little easier. Then you could kind of explain like how the flavor, you can even do that in session zero. But if you're in a mystery campaign, the solution to the problem is not to kick the door down and blast the monster with a bunch of <laughs> gunfire, which I'm constantly still trying to do in Thorne's campaign, and he won't let me. And it's, it's I was just sh- going to point that what out, occasion? unless you're DM Tony, and then that's exactly what you're trying to do. <laughs> My character is an idiot, okay? He is not... <laughs> He's absolutely not the smartest person in the party. He's pr- in, we'll at least leave that there. But with that said, in the Marvel campaign, sometimes things are much more straightforward. There are bad guys and you deal with them. So to make that, to change that up so it's not just a case of, I need to go get, get the bad guys and find them and smack them around, I throw out other things to, to complicate them, such as, uh, you don't know where they are. You have other obstacles. You have more pressing matters. Someone's uh, threatening one of uh, the NPCs. You're on a timer. Yeah. How how do you approach problems? You know, you're teaching them how to play your game. That's in that setting. That's one of the things I throw out there. Yeah, any- that's a that's a great point because like, in, in you in you so in a fantasy game, how you solve your problems is generally you go grab your swords and your spells and your and, and your magic wands and your battle axes and you go kill it. Yeah. Or otherwise, Elder's blast. Your- occasionally you're going to solve it a little more diplomatically, but for the most part, the game is set up around, I, I go kill the thing. Maybe, maybe you've got, you know, maybe you've got the kind of party where they try to civilize and tame everything they have. Great. That's fun. They're still usually taking the, the wolves they tamed at third level to try to kill the thing they meet at fifth level. <laughs> yeah. Know? Yeah. The riddle of steel still exists for them. Though. Yeah. In a superhero game, you know, when you're trying to set that, it is much more, it is, I guess it's kind of the same in a lot of ways, except you're not trying to kill it. You're trying to stop it without killing it, is what we had talked about last week. That the superhero genre is much more. Uh, who's <laughs> running the game? I'm like, well, go ahead, kill him. I like, I'm offended. No, it's, that's true, Tony. It depends on who's running the game. It also depends on what style of superhero game you're playing or you're trying to create as we're starting to see, or at least as I'm. I'm going to start to try to create when we do this more street level campaign, you know, a little more intrigue, that type of thing. And to, to catch what we're kind of, 
we're kind of alluding to there is that uh, the original Marvel system was very anti-capital punishment in the field for the villain. They really frowned upon that. There were some very stiff penalties to your character if you do that. And that's something, of course, you throw that in session zero, but that's also a part of the world. That's not how you do things. Captain America does not kill Dr. Doom and throw his dead body in front of, like, you know, the police chief and be like, well, that problem solved. <laughs> and when they do, they get no karma for it. If the hero decides you know to break down and kill them, Dr. They Doom again. Them. Like, oh, shit. <laughs> yeah, that is that is the cost. That is the cost for something like that. Because it, it would have happened in the comics, and it has, but it always came it you realized the enormity of that. Uh someone, you know, a hero in essence taking a life. You you know, they it happens so rarely that you you realize the weight of that. And so that was a reflection within the mechanics of the system to try to reinforce that idea, you know. Which I don't necessarily disagree with either. I mean, it's like, it, so I guess the hallmarks of the superhero genre are, number one, you have superpowers. You're above normal people. Uh, your villains also, often also have superpowers or otherwise have reasons they're, they're able to do things other people can't. Even if it's just like in Batman where it's because they're willing to get guns and shoot people. Yeah. Uh, so your villains are in this, you and the villains are in that same category of we're here to slug it out with each other and we got to save the rest of the people here. And you're trying to be a hero and save the day and not make the world a worse place. That's kind of the, those are those are kind of the, the the hallmarks of a superhero story and usually set in a modern day or a relatively modern day. 1980. Yeah, a lot of them are set in the 80s or 90s because that's when a lot of the classic comic books are or they're set, you know, in the near future. But like kind of somewhere yeah. in this roughly 100 year span from like 1980 to, to I guess 2100. It's yeah, kind of like you're future. playing like the shadow and then it can be in during your Call of Cthulhu times, but that's <laughs> rare for the silver age of comics, you know, but it's possible. It's possible. Then you're playing a guy with no superpowers and a cape and a hat running around trying to find <laughs> clues. Just as a point to this, too, because, again, it reinforces some of the different what you're going for in different genres. And we're, when we're talking about like the superheroes, aside from. Uh, the anti-heroes like, like Deadpool and Wolverine and the Punisher. When you're talking about hero heroes, uh, there is also a mechanic in the Marvel system where things like property damage cost you karma and cost you popularity because you're supposed to be saving the day. And meanwhile, you just blew up the dude's deli where he's been making the best sandwiches on Fifth <laughs> Avenue for the last 20 years, right? So I actually... As a point, I brought this up to Matt, one of the players that's going to be in my Marvel campaign, because of his character who has the ability for, like, earth control. So he could rip up concrete and asphalt. And I said, just realize you're in the middle of a city, so that will have costs to it because you've now destroyed a half a city block, you know, which plays differently than when we're the super high intensity team and we're just flying in space shooting at Galactus or something, right? It's it's a totally different type of genre. Don't, don't shoot at Galactus. Don't do it. <laughs> <laughs> one of the elders then. One of to the elders. Fair, I think we've done a lot of street level damage in cities that just, you know, don't count. Adelaide. Yeah, but we don't live there. So like we're like, aren't we gonna be popular in Atlantis? Like who cares? Didn't we rip up like the necropolis of that one? Yeah, like just desecrating tombs in the on the place in the moon. Kind of. We were searching. We were looking for clues. And we had the we had the the the, the, the wherewithal of the inhuman royal family behind us. They had given us the go-ahead to get to the bottom of the mystery. <laughs> it was this. You were on a timer. <laughs> and that's it, right? You're saving the day. Sometimes you can do things other people aren't allowed to do because you're there to save the day, because you're superheroes. Right. So backing that up now to the Eldritch Horror kind of game, the mm-hmm. 1920s, uh, the 1920s mystery genre where the players are touching on things that are far beyond their ken, and the players are not super. The players do not have superpowers or magic powers or, you know, probably the most magical thing they have is a Tommy gun and perhaps the shotgun and some dynamite. And if I could just say, too, like, we're not even really that great at the things that we're really good at either. I'm just, like, we're very human. We're very, very human. <laughs> And so, all right, so the way I build that genre is I do a couple things here. 
number one, we talked about this. It's almost like history buff the RPG because you try to, I try to pull on as much historical accuracy as I can because the way that that world is set up, the way the Call of Cthulhu world is set up is it's happening in our world in like roughly the 20s, wherever you set it, we're setting it in the late 20s. So you want that world to feel as real as it can. So when you introduce the elements of Eldritch Horror, they feel as alien as they're supposed to. And some things go along with that. Number one is figuring out, okay, so what really was life like here? Dropping in real details, you know, baseball scores, um, making sure you know what the trucks are and what the buildings look like. I went to, uh, I've mentioned this before, there's like, there are, there's, the, the party started out in Rockport, and there's actually historical photos you can get of what Rockport looked like in the 20s. Uh, I dug up an old bookbinder's menu so we could see what bookbinders charged. I think it was actually in the 40s, but I was like, all right, this is as close as I can get. So you can find these little details that make the party feel like, hey, I'm just walking around, driving the kind of period cars, walking into period restaurants, dealing with prohibition and not being able to drink whenever I want. But, you know, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. I know how to get a drink. Newsstand. Literally everyone drinks in that entire world that we're in. Literally every. I don't. We haven't met one yet that doesn't. That is, is sort of how prohibition and works. But I think that's very historically accurate. Though, yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, the people wanted prohibition. And the first thing they did was ignore prohibition. Uh, <laughs> to be fair, not most people wanted it. It got through anyway. So you, if you want to do kind of that this this kind of mystery game, this Eldritch Horror game, you root it in reality. You make it feel as real as you can, and then you start layering on the things that crack the reality. You know, the little clue that isn't quite right. The, you know, the thing, the, the, the death that can be explained as a murder, except no one would do that. And he looks like he was torn apart by amphibian claws. It, you know, things like that. You know, okay, like someone finds a coin. boiled from the inside. Yeah, that, that. <laughs> <laughs> that comes up in another adventure we're in. You yeah. know, it's, it's there's a coin with with weird symbols on it that no one can trace. But, you know, maybe of antiquarian and you say, oh, that kind of reminds me of ancient Phoenician. But it's a little different. That actually comes from some like, you know, deep Atlantean kind of realm. You do those things to start cracking the reality that you've worked to to to, to put in place. And then the other thing you do is you don't hand it to the players you make the players go find the clues and figure it out. And you do it as much as you can. You make the players put the things together without hitting them over the head of the story. So the players have the experience of, I am uncovering the truth behind the world. The other thing, which we've talked about a lot, is you need to decide how much your firearms are going to be affected. Because whether it's a mystery game or an Eldritch Horror game really comes down to, okay, once the party gets their hands on a Tommy gun, is that Tommy gun going to get them out of trouble? And how often will it get them out of trouble? Okay, that might be great against humans, might be great against some Eldritch things, but when they run into Cthulhu, he does not care about their Tommy gun. And that's the thing. <laughs> they, they can't solve their problem. They can solve some problems by shooting their way out. That should be part of it. Let them enjoy some of that. But when it comes to the important things, yeah, the bullets aren't going to be so effective. Cthulhu's not going to care about your Tommy gun. Cthulhu's still going to drive you insane. You've got to figure out how to deal with Cthulhu another way. Through some we kind almost, of secret you have to discover. The yellow emperor almost came, but then John Dillinger showed up, thankfully. <laughs> Everything was okay. Cthulhu's like the ultimate hostage situation. As soon as he shows up, you're dead. So it's like this great horrifying thing. As soon as he arrives, you're done, especially in that world. But I mean, the, the, before he arrives, you're already going insane. That's part of his deal. He starts making anyone who's quote-unquote sensitive starts going insane in the world. Sensitive as in your brain isn't made of you know rocks. One of the parts of his question was around uh, player agency and changing the flow of the game. In Storm King's Thunder, it was a a fantasy game where there was a lot of options on how things that could be handled. And, of course, obviously uh, combat's a hallmark of really 9 out of 10 uh, such games. But I had three players with very high charisma scores who threw the diplomacy out there and they went hard on it kind of like my barbarian went hard into pro wrestling in dave's <laughs> campaign which actually does not fit his environment whatsoever but he let me go with it but anyway they had success with it between the three dave was out dave's character was out in front primarily but he had two other high charisma characters with him and they started leaning on that tool and it it changed the dynamic you you had more of an investigation you more of a diplomacy they then switched from, we're not shooting first. In almost every situation, that's the guy who's coming at them with guns. They're like, hey, let's talk to this guy. This yeah, it became, more like, it became more like an intrigue game. We really, we beat Storm King Thunder through court intrigue, really. And so let me tell you, I'm surprised. I would not disagree with that. Yeah, I would not disagree. I mean, we did our share of kicking indoors. 
right? We did our share of D&D, as it were. But yeah, we absolutely did put more clues together and gather allies I think, you know, and try to win over without having to fight the last big boss battle against an actual big boss, you know, just gave them more evidence as it were. And we did, we did have a final fight. Like there was still one, but yeah, we kind of won the day through gathering evidence. Like you said, Dave, uh, you know, building our allies and then also delivering a career, basically the, the killer closing argument. We basically lawyer, you know, we, we played that game. Like it was a few good men, you know, we, yeah. you, we don't, you know, your character went in there and said, I want the truth. He got him to say, you can't handle the truth. And then pushed him to tell us the truth. That, that was basically what happened. Did you honor the code red? Did you honor the code red? And you know, that's, so one of the things you asked about here is how do you build and how, how do you make an intrigue game? And I would say the hallmarks of an intrigue game sort of like a mystery game or that you have to put the players in a situation where they can't just shoot or slash their way out of it. And in an entry game, that usually means they're in a setting where if they draw swords, unless they're super, super secretive about it, they're going to get cut down by the castle guard or whatever. They're going to get caught by the authority. So that's kind of how you do an entry game for starters. Even if the players don't lean into it, you want to, the stage should be something like, okay, well, we don't feel like we can go aggro here. So we have to work behind the scenes and build allies and make arguments and build a case. So we rely on that with the the occasional, maybe, you know, a big part of intrigue games can be secret assassinations and can be missions to like sneak into the king's bedchamber to get that 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 secret treaty he offered to the enemy or something like that. You know, so that's, you know, like mystery when you're doing intrigue, you're going to want to take away some of the options, some of the effectiveness of combat. The difference is with intrigue is you're going to want them to convince people to help them even more than they're gathering clues and putting things together. So there's some of that in, say, the Eldritch Horror game. There can be some of getting people to help you. But in Eldritch Horror, you're really more or less trying to figure out the secret that may or may not let you put this problem back to sleep for a thousand years. So someone else has to deal with it then. In an intrigue game, you're probably you're looking to build allies and expose plots and basically flip the public opinion of things so that what you want to have happen happens. And the DM needs to provide the ability to do that with plots that are there for you to unravel, with people who are there who are going to want to know secrets and who will side with you because you know secrets. And that did become a big factor of our Storm King's Thunder game because of the way the players played it. So if you look, if you look at Game of Thrones, you have to ask the question, you know, okay, so Joffrey's over there. Why don't we just go roll him? Right. Like, now's the time. Because that is not an effective way of handling it. Because there's too many obstacles in front of there. You'll get chewed up. And I had a buddy who actually ran some pretty good intrigue-based games. And unfortunately, the the group we were with, myself included, are a much more direct, you know, let's go break this guy's legs approach to it. But this person has allies, he's fortified, et cetera, et cetera. It is, it is a different vibe. And if you could show the players that that's how things, that, that, is, the better, that is the best option to success. Kicking in the door, frontal assault, that's a problem, especially back in the day, D&D. How do we handle problems? You kick in the door like freaking Rambo and you take down a whole castle full of people like you're doing a montage and the music's playing in the background. And, and let's be honest, it, it feels good. It, it does. Feels yeah. good. <laughs> Which is awesome, right? Which is an awesome kind oh, of gaming. Yeah. And that's all those power that's fantasies. Kind of, let's go. <laughs> yeah, that's where it started from, right? Was kind of just, here's a dungeon, go kick in the doors and start, you know, killing things and taking their treasure. And, and, and there you go. And this goes back to some of what we were talking about when we were talking about running superhero campaigns, because I think it revolves around the same. And we talked about it with Call of Cthulhu as well, Thorin, because of your your more improv style. But with Cthulhu, because of the mystery involved, because of the clues, because these things have to work all together and make cohesive sense, they have to be internally consistent, their logic. There is a more of a, a prep of that, a more of a work to build that world out and uh, that overarching mystery out that you don't necessarily have to have in your kick a door in and fight the bad guy game. So in the same way with an intrigue game too, you need to have a lot of those things worked out. I would go back, we talked about it at one point, we mentioned uh, the Matt Colville video about where does power come from? And he went over about Black Panther and why these things mattered. So if you're talking about Game of Thrones, the whole Joffrey and Baratheon thing matters because of the way in which power is transferred and the way in which that society agrees to that. So you can't just kick in the door and kill Joffrey because one, the town's guard will kill you, the king's guard, or, or two, the people won't follow you because you're an usurper. 
right? You don't belong in that throne, right? And they, that's kind of what they went over through eight seasons was that. Well, yeah, uh, the, in an intrigue game, the evil isn't necessarily one person. It's systemic. So you kill mm. Joffrey, as Game of Thrones did, and you don't get rid of the problem because the people putting oh. Joffrey in power are still there. They're just it's a new just Joffrey. Worse. Yeah. yeah, it's just worse. Now you're just on Joffrey. It's like you were you said this in an, early, in an earlier episode, Dave, how there's that other kind of evil that is basically the amorphous evil that you can't get rid of. You're using some of that in an entry game where you need yes. to do something politically to dig this rot out to get rid of it. And you will never be able to solve the problem with a well-placed dagger. Right. I made this point in a previous article, too, where I kind of broke out what I did because it was the first time that I really kind of played with this idea of these multiple webs the the web of intrigue uh with my one shot marvel game where i had multiple factions all having goals and you couldn't just go in you can't just go kick in the door wilson fisk the kingpin and kill him because now you've killed an upstanding citizen of new york city you all realize he's the kingpin it doesn't matter that's why daredevil didn't take him down right right but then at the same point i had the Magia organization with their own kinds of things happening. And you couldn't just kick in the door. I mean, you could because of the mob, but they're connected. They have certain power. They have goals. Then I also had the Hellfire Club also was involved, and they were doing their things. And they were then interacting with the Magia. And with the Kingpin was then trying to take out his competition. So you had all of these separate factions all vying so it wasn't just let's take out that guy and we're good well no he that's there you just made a power back where you destabilize a whole region right it didn't help anything yeah that kind of covers intrigue so we've covered fantasy eldritar mystery by way of eldritar intrigue we covered superheroes we haven't gotten to the last thing the thing actually specifically jared was looking to do which is steampunk and how do you handle how do you kind of create that kind of howl's moving castle castle in the sky kind of vibe where you have the combination of magic and technology. I would say I kind of see two different versions of this. There is the true steampunk, and then there's kind of the magic punk. And I think they're a little bit different. Like, to me, a steampunk setting is one in which there's some magic, there is technology, Victorian technological ideas work. It's one of the big things, right? So you take kind of Victorian and, like, even Da Vinci, like kind of Leonardo Da Vinci sketches, he's not Victorian, but... Some of these ideas kind of reflect kind of that that kind of view of technology. And you build a world where essentially that works, where airships can be, you know, these massive, fast, king of the sky kind of vehicles, where planes of odd shapes can still fly, where you can have ornithopters, which we haven't figured. Well, I, I'm sure someone figured out ornithopters, but you know, ornithopters being things where, you know, flying vehicles that use flapping wings instead of propellers or other thrust. So steampunk to me involves that with a with some magic, often under either underlying it or kind of it can even be powering it, kind of aligned together. But I don't necessarily see in steampunk magic working everything. To me, steampunk's a little more this side of technology does amazing things that we weren't thinking was possible. So you wind up with a kind of like League of Extraordinary Gentlemen kind of world with some mm. magic in it as well. To me, magic punk is a little more like Aberrant. So it's a kind of a steampunky kind of idea, except it is magic suffuses the world. Magicians are like you, you could basically be a magician like a plumber. I'm just here to fix your I'm just here to make sure your home's magical systems are working OK. And it becomes the underlying at essence of all the technology you're using. That's to me how I would describe it. And I think they're different genres. I think from the magic punk point of view, Eberron, D&D's Eberron setting, which we haven't played, but I have and I've looked over, seems like a really cool way to do that. And they do it by basically setting up from the beginning that magic's almost everywhere. Not that everyone has magic, but you have magical transportation systems. You have a magic railroad that is powered by bound lightning elementals. You have airships that are powered by bound, you know, air elementals. And you have magic working everywhere. Like your lights, your, your house lights work on magic. You know, you basically, you come in, you turn your light switch on, and it is turning on basically uh, drift globes inside your house. You may be born with magical powers and magical tattoos because you're from a magical household that give you the power to really influence things. You know, that kind of setting, that kind of vibe reminds me more of kind of a castle in the sky, house moving castle kind of thing sometimes. Well, that's, I look at something like this and I say, okay, what does technology do in this world differently than magic? Yeah. That would be one of my, 
you're going to define it so it's not separate. So it's not simply like, well, I could kill somebody with this magic missile or the gun. Well, you can, but why is it different? Better range? Uh, is something rarer? Is something harder to learn? Are the spells harder to get? Are the guns more accessible? These are the questions that help define and really dig out these details. Is there a synthesis of magic and technology? How available is that? They did a lot in the Rifts and Palladium system, which I just wrote an article on. Please read it. Um, but technology in that system, for example, uh, did some incredible stuff that magic could not. For example, I could get a jet and fly around. You're not doing that with magic. Now, magic would let you shoot down a ley line across the world. So I could take everybody and find a magical line of energy on this planet and then shoot to Africa while the guy's still in the jet. <laughs> So it's different. It, it handles problems differently, and other ones have a better touch. You come across a vault, like a Fallout vault, and it's locked. Well, your magic's probably not going to open it, but the hacker may be able to. Yeah. Thorne, the first thing uh, came to my mind when I read the question was Eberron 2, for the same reason, because that's that's kind of D&D's current answer to that question is, okay, what about high technology? What about steampunk? What about, what about is Eberron also... Not surprisingly, that's the first time we really see the build out for the Artificer class, which is what I really think we're talking about, because Artificer is about the most steampunk thing I can think of in a D&D &D setting, uh, because it's technological, but it's completely infused with some sort of magic. So it's the marrying of those two things. So you could go that route with it, mm -hmm. where it's magic has suffused the world and technology is an outgrowth of that as people are designing things. You could also go the route of The Last Airbender, where you have Avatar The Last Airbender, which happens in more of a colonial, kind of ancient China, Asia type of, of area, more feudal. You have kingdoms, kings, that kind of stuff. And then they have The Legend of Korra, which fast forwards you to like the 1920s, 1910s, 1920s, where now they have radios, they have cars, they have all, and how the the magic, the the airbending, all the bending, that is not just airbending, all the bending mixes with this new technology because not everyone has magic. And there is that conflict between and within the society of the non-benders feeling like they are oppressed in a way of the benders um so you could go that way with it as well or you could in essence take it down to your main thesis point of saying it's science versus religion it's mm -hmm. magic is explaining the world in this way and science is coming along and explaining it in this way and now you have this friction between different factions. So it depends if you want to create a lot of conflict with it or if you just want a cool flavoring for the world to be driving cool cars that are powered by magic or, you know, hell engines or something like that, right? That kind of reminds me of the book Scott's working on. If you yeah. were working on that one, but uh, the, the, the Fire in the Mountain, I think it was, or? Yes, very much that. Uh, yes, I think Fire in the Mountain. Yeah, where it was kind of the revolutionary period starting to fight against magic in essence and it was yeah. sort of come back into the world you know yeah i don't know if that has gone to publish yet so so one of our players is a, has actually written several books a, a published author with several books out there and one he was working on has elements of this and it was a really cool way he did it but that was a little bit yeah like the the there's the religious side which is kind of using a lot of technology and religion to kind of push down the magic users who they see as like heretics essentially yeah i think it comes down to what tony mentioned in the beginning which is and this is really the difference, too, but why I say there's a difference between magic tech or magic punk and steampunk. Because I think if you're doing steampunk, there is a difference between what technology can do and what magic can do. If you're doing magic punk, which is more like Eberron, they melt. Yeah. Your technology uses your magic and it amplifies your magic, does other things. I do feel like the Artificer is more like that. Like the Artificer doesn't mm -hmm. to me feel, it, it still feels like a spellcaster to me. And it fundamentally is a spellcaster in D&D. They didn't basically set up the Artificer as a different path to different things. They set up the Artificer as a technologist who uses magic to empower technology. So it's yeah. a little more magic punk to me than steampunk. Although splitting hairs, I'm sure other people would disagree and, and totally validly. But if you're going to do the steampunk kind of thing, I think, and I'm thinking of shows like Carnival Row which is a fantastic uh -huh. steampunk series on, on Amazon. And in a steampunk, I think you want a difference between what you can achieve with magic, what you can achieve with technology. That technology, perhaps because of its numbers, can defeat magic when used basically oppressively. 
yeah, that's usually kind of a hallmark of it because otherwise your magic just keeps everything in check, you know? So your, your technology has to be powerful enough that it can push back against magic and can win. And oftentimes people do these stories with that kind of carnival row kind of dichotomy of the technology is kind of, they're really oppressing the magic users. They, we've moved away from kind of a lost magical period to a now a high tech and post-industrial revolution period where the post-industrial revolution technology is oppressing the magic, which again, we're getting back to, frankly, Tolkien themes here. Yeah, and a lot of this is really kind of fundamental to kind of a lot of the stories we all read and love. So you, you do want to define, I think if you want to have a, a strong, uh, you know, steam, uh, steampunk kind of setting, how are they different? And I know I haven't seen Castle in the Sky recently. I have seen Howl's Moving Castle recently. One of the hallmarks of Howl's Moving Castle is this dichotomy. There are magicians in the world. They do their own thing. They tend to be loners. They tend to be very dangerous. And the kind of the, 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 the governments of the world are having a war. And the magicians are really not really in play in the war, but when they're found, they're kind of driven down. They're, 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 they're kind of locked. They're, they're, they're oppressed, essentially. And if you are a magician, you have to report to the government to basically serve the government or be punished. So, you know, that's kind of, to me, you know, you want that kind of dichotomy in a steampunk kind of setting. You want technology to be able to outstrip, to basically, the magic user may be overall be able to access more power but technology in numbers is able to beat the magic user. That's usually to me a, a real hallmark of these stories when they're done well. Very similar to like what I said with uh, Korra, the legend of Korra for the last airbender. Yeah. It very much was vendors are awesome, but not everyone is one. So if everyone started to band together against that, this is what might happen. Yeah, which is, yeah, basically. And it is like, so I guess the difference is you want to decide, is your magic working with your technology or is your technology working against your magic? Perhaps as a way, in the way of many of these, like like like, like uh, Avatar kind of does it, the technologists are sort of, they have a chip on the shoulder about always being basically second-class citizens, citizens to the magic users. Exactly. So they're using technology not just to do cool things, but to basically push the magic users down and to establish themselves as dominant. So it's... That's usually an aspect of some of the steampunky kind of stuff. Now, on the other hand, you can do like a Wild Wild West type thing, which I also think of as steampunk. Maybe there's some magic in there, but mostly it's kind of you're, you're using technology. You know, there's the old statement that any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. magic. In that kind of setting, you sort of replace your magic with your technology. So you can do a setting where you basically take all the all the magic spells and make them all technological effects. You can do a sci-fi setting that way. You can do a superhero setting that way. We've talked about Caves and Crooks already. That is a little bit what's going on in that setting. It's just kind of taking a lot of the D&D &D fundamentals and turning it towards a superhero game. Well, that's what they did in Asgard in the Thor movies. It was just science. They literally said so. Sometimes, so. yeah. 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 My, the last game that I ran right before COVID was, uh, it was a Rifts game, ironically. It was kind of like a hybrid house ruled a bit. And it was set in post-apocalyptic Texas, where there was technology. The technology was a little sketchy. It was more Wild West level. And both magic and psionics were available. However, old world technology before the apocalypse was out there if you could find it and it was devastatingly badass just like old magic that now had become much more potent in this new environment was out there as well so that kind of added a degree of mystery that there were certainly much cooler things out there than you have but the things that were available like a regular six shooter so to speak like a cowboy would have uh the cattleman revolver from uh Red Dead Redemption would certainly handle somebody. So going back to player agency, if you're in a fantasy setting, you have a player who wants to come in and do some technological stuff, like be a gunslinger, do you let them? Well, there's really no reason why the rules break at that point. Yeah. Uh, it's, an it's another weapon. Uh, we, we're talking about, like, how is a gun handled? And Gygax wrote rules surrounding this. You know, is a gun, people are like, oh, I have a gun, I'll shoot you. His head will explode like a watermelon. No, it won't. It's got range. <laughs> It'll do damage. You have to buy rounds. It's just like a crossbow, but it's different. There's actually quite a lot of overlap historically between guns and swords and armor and, and on the field of war. Guns eventually advance to the point where they're so strong that they start phasing out armor because you, there's no reason to wear it against against like musket fire. When you're talking like flintlocks or like kind of like, you know, like Louis the 14th musketeers. Yeah, they have guns. They have explosive grenades. 
but it still comes down to having one or two preloaded guns and then using your sword a lot. And then you, you got know, to it, get that's, it that's, in melee, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, there's definitely room for those in there. But I don't think – I think you can do that. I think you can add guns or some element of technology to whatever setting you're in without really ruining the setting. You just kind of maybe isolate a little bit. Maybe that's that, that gunslinger comes from a lost civilization that otherwise isn't in your game or just shows up on occasion. Like, I don't know, maybe his name's Roland, you know, ah. something like that. You know? <laughs> and he's yeah, got to no, go. I think gunslingers are, tower. Yeah, I think gunslingers are awesome in D&D, you know, if done within a thing. I, I, I'm not a fan of you bring in a guy with the AK-47 or something because, like, there's no, like, the mechanics will become ridiculous for that, but... Yeah, gotta give him a laser. I mean, well, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Which you can, but then the magic user only has two lightning bolts they can use, and meanwhile, this guy's firing out lasers every round, you know. So. And in D and D, yes, you're absolutely right. You can get a, like a laser weapon, but that's really high end. When that person has that antimatter rifle, the other wizard's got a staff of power. In uh, my one D and D game, you played in Thor. I had a gunslinger. How did you think that played? I thought it was fine, to be honest with you. I mean, I mean, the conceit there was that he came from a future, from the future, literally. So he literally had a gun from the future that seemed odd. I didn't mind it. You know, there's so much other, with all the other fantasy going on, why can't you have a time traveler? There are time traveling spells, I believe. If there aren't, there certainly could be. You know, you just go, at, go, go, bring back a gun. I think you can totally do that. Very, very much end of time bandit style. If anyone remembers that classic movie, you know, where they come back from time to fight the evil wizard with a tank and with guns. And unfortunately, the evil wizard can still defeat them, even though they have tanks and guns. Hey, anything with Mick Jagger is is a classic. <laughs> in my opinion. Let's do it. <laughs> All right, guys. We have been going on for a little bit here, so let's get the final thoughts about bringing these other genre games to life. What do you what do you want to leave the audience with? I recommend that you set the scene. Make sure whatever environment you're in has a degree of flavor, but not so much that there's so much explosion in your mouth of flavor. You're like, what the <laughs> hell am I eating? You have to fill your environment with interesting and memorable NPCs that are indigenous to that environment that makes this place stand out, like Dave's Madam Eva from Ravenloft, or if you're going to have go into uh, Greyhawk, you're going to find Rary or Tensor or one of those great legendary magicians. And finally, you need to define where magic stands in your environment. How is this a low-end world? Is this a high-end world? Is it able, you able to find a magical sword easily? Is mm -hmm. it in a shop? Has no one seen one for years? Where does all that stand? And then that adds the framework for your environment. I would say know your system because not every system is going to be able to let you play that type of genre game in the same way. And I'll use the two ideas of, let's say, Strahd versus Call of Cthulhu. So if I took Strahd and I put it in Call of Cthulhu, well, now I'm playing Salem's Lot, which is a whole lot different than Curse of Strahd. Similarly, if I'm trying to take Call of Cthulhu mechanics and I'm playing Lord of the Rings, not really going to matter when I run up against one Nazgul. The end. Like, that's your Eldritch Horror. It's the end of the game, right? And then, accordingly, know your source material. Mm -hmm. So we are all stealing from stuff. So know what you're trying to get at. Thorne, you had said a great uh, show with Carnival Row. If you were trying to do something like that, that's going to give you a lot as to what mechanics you want to use and not use, what system you want to use and not use, what type of stuff in, let's say, a session zero you'd want to go over with your players to help craft this world. And for me, you know, I think I'm going to break down how do you really, this really comes down to how do you bring your genre to life? We had the episode not that long ago about how do you bring your campaign world to life. This dovetails with that a bit, but it's more about the genre itself. And I think Tony mentioned something earlier that is really key. And it's one of the, I would, I would say, are the three things that let you define your genre to your players. Number one, like Tony said earlier, how can they get things done? This is the most important thing for driving home what genre are you playing. If you're playing sword and sorcery, traditional D&D, the players get things done generally by finding out who they have to go beat up and beating them up. Occasionally convincing them instead of beating them up. But for the most part, beating them up and usually beating them to death, taking their stuff, leveling up, and going and beating up the next tougher thing. In a mystery game, the players get stuff done by going around, investigating locations, asking questions, talking to NPCs, finding out what they know, and using them to put together the mystery. And then if it's Eldritch Horror, 
they wind up learning something they wish they hadn't learned and they need to figure out how do they put it to bed for a little longer before it destroys the world, which is more mystery. And hopefully they find a ritual or something to help, or maybe they're just screwed. Maybe they write that town off. That is another way to end a mystery game, uh, or <laughs> an elder card game. In a mystery game, you know, usually it's, if you're doing Scooby-Doo, you find that you, you figure out who the bad guy is. You go and mask the bad guy, you turn him to the police and it's done. It's either Mr. way, Willikers. It's yeah, Mr. Willikers. either way you're, you're, you're getting yeah. stuff. It's how you get stuff done. And I would say in elder's horror, you also will eventually have access to magical ultra ways to get things done, such as talking to elder gods, you know, communing with elder gods who drive you insane, but maybe give you a clue that serves them, that kind of thing. I love that trick myself. Yeah, I'll, I'll help you solve this. But in the process, you're going you're going to unwittingly help me come into the world. That is the kind of the way you want to play elder, elder, elder horror type of games. After how you get things done, I think the technology and actually the equipment you give the players is really important. And this also dovetails with like their occupations or, you know, classes in D&D. But players, you know, remember if they're using a revolver or they're using a sword. Are they using a magic wand or are they using kind of some kind of steampunk ray gun? Those sorts of things help drive home the genre you're in. And that's kind of why I prefer to do more equipment than, say, modern D&D does. Like second edition was very equipment focused in that equipment, learning about the equipment tended to make it more, bring the medieval fantasy to life. I like adding that because it adds more of those little setting touches. Whereas de-emphasizing equipment like current D&D does makes it a little more like kind of a superhero game where the game's all about your player powers, which D&D has chosen to do. I think if you're trying to set a genre tone, you want to add some more equipment focus back in because your equipment sets your scene. And then the third way is in your description. You know, and do you describe things as being oppressive or being light and airy? Is it bright fairy magic? Is it dark castles? Is it grim and grimy streets? Are players getting run down by cars or run down by horses? That's the third pillar is your description of the world. And that will help carry the world, but it's the third in priority after how do the players get things done and what do the players actually use? Because that's what players actually remember. And that's it for me. Guys, thanks again. This has been fun. Good stuff. And thank you also to our sponsor, Capes and Crooks. Remember, visit critacademy.com slash capes and crooks for more information about this upcoming 5e compatible superhero role-playing game. Now, today's episode was from a reader question. If you would like to have us answer your question, please send it into 3wisedms at gmail.com or go to our website, 3wisedms.com, and enter it in the What's Your Problem field or talk to us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. We're very active on all those all those social networks, and we'll do our best to answer your questions or work them into the show. If you do like what you heard, please give us a five-star rating on your podcast platform of choice. And if you can, give us a review. You know, tell your friends. We really appreciate it. We've been growing by leaps and bounds, and that's really because of you. Thank you so much. The, the, the feedback and the support you've given us means everything to us. So, so thank you again. That's it for this week. We'll see you next time on Three Wise DMs. 